I wasn't growing anymore. I didn't like the commute. I realized that I was spending an hour each way, which was adding up to about 10 hours per week. That's 40 hours a month that I was just in public transportation. And I realized how much more I could do at that time. It made me realize that every choice that I make for something is a choice against something else or a choice not to pursue something else. So it's constantly a trade-off. The minute that I realized that I'd rather be somewhere else was the minute that I realized I had to leave. There's a revolution taking place right now. Talent and intelligence are equally distributed throughout the world, but opportunity is not. The talent economy, the idea that at the center of work is the talent, is the individual. Companies today face a global war for talent, and high-skilled talent is demanding flexibility around the way they work and the way they live. This podcast brings together thought leaders, staffing experts, and top freelancers to talk about the evolving nature of work and how companies can navigate these changes to remain competitive, drive innovation, and ensure success. Welcome to the Talent Economy Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Estes. My guest today is an amazing designer, Melissa Morgan, a freelancer and a marketing strategist. She'll share with us her journey of self-discovery, the skills that are needed to be a freelancer, and advice for companies taking their first step into the talent economy. Hi, everyone. I'm Melissa Morgan. I am a freelance designer based in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. I have been freelancing now for about three years. Before that, I worked at a comfortable job doing UI, UX, visual design for a company in AR and tech. Before that, I was actually running my own business out of the University of Waterloo. And during that time, I was actually a student studying psychology. So it's been a bit of a pivotal path to get where I am now and couldn't be happier, to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's amazing. Hey, thank you for joining me. It's not often that we talk to actual talent. I'm a freelancer as well. And we spend a lot of time on the show talking to CEOs of companies and thought leaders in the space and people from the staffing industry and, and corporate leaders. But I think this might be one of the first times we're actually talking to a freelancer. One of the interesting things about your introduction was that you were a psychology major and you shifted into design. Help me understand like when you realized you wanted to be a designer. I actually wanted to become a psychiatrist when I was studying psychology. That was my intention. But I do realize that I wasn't a fan of how it was taught at my particular university. And the second thing I realized was that I was too crazy to tell other people that they were crazy. (laughs) So I found myself switching into a joint business and design program instead. It wasn't design exactly that coerced me into that. I, I never really knew that I wanted to be a designer, but I just knew that I loved to solve problems. I guess I realized that I was on the right path when people told me that they were willing to pay me to solve problems creatively. (laughs) That's kind of how I got into the field. One of the things that's interesting about freelancers in general is that, you know, you're a designer, you spend your time solving problems creatively, but you also started a business and you're sort of an entrepreneur as well, not just a designer sitting in a company doing design. Tell me your journey from having that comfortable job to becoming a freelancer and and taking that risk. What are some of the skills that you learned in that journey? So when I was 19, still at the University of Waterloo, I started my first business. It was called U Intuition, and it was a platform connecting talented post-secondary students with job opportunities. And the intention with that was to help students to pay off their student loans while building their resumes and portfolios, expanding their network. So I ran that for about three years out of the University of Waterloo Accelerator Center. And then I had got my comfortable job out of school when I realized that that business was not sustainable. 
best way to learn, in my opinion, is to fail. <laughs> and I think failure is just inevitable. So when I had this comfortable job, I was very happy there. It was a great little company, great culture. But I think one of the things that I, that I realized was that I wasn't growing anymore. I didn't like the commute. I realized that I was spending an hour each way, which was adding up to about 10 hours per week. That's 40 hours a month that I was just in public transportation. And I realized how much more I could do with that time. So for me, it made me realize that every choice that I make for something is a choice against something else or a choice not to pursue something else. So it's constantly a trade-off. And the minute that I realized that I'd rather be somewhere else was the minute that I realized I had to leave. It wasn't necessarily that I knew I wanted to be a freelancer, but I did know that I wanted the lifestyle of a freelancer in that as a freelancer, you can work from anywhere in the world. You set your own hours. A lot of my video calls, I'm, I'm in PJs and I've got a dress shirt from the waist up. <laughs> no one ever knows. It's great. I am able to take vacation and travel the world. And in the future, when I hope to have a family, I can work from home and be with them. And it was in that sense, when I stopped focusing on the possibility of failure and started thinking about the possibility of what my life could look like, it just changed for me and, and things kind of fell into place, I would say. That really resonates with me because it was this summer that my wife and I were on vacation and we had a conversation of what do we want our life to look like? We had corporate jobs for a long time. I'd been in big tech for 20 years and I'd never stopped to say, hey, how do I want to spend my time? You know, where do I want to find, whether it's balance or work. And I've been writing about freelancers for a long time. And my wife said, well, why don't you just become one? So it was kind of a aha moment for me. Where does your entrepreneurial spirit come from? I think one of the things that people that are thinking about moving from comfortable jobs into freelancing often ask me is, hey, I don't know if I have the skills to become a freelancer. And one of those skills that you have to have is entrepreneurial skills of putting yourself out there and and having your own business on top of the value you provide, whether it's design or development or consulting? I think to some extent, most people have this entrepreneurial spirit in the sense that many of us have visions for our own lives, having a better future for ourselves and others. The only thing that I think really makes me any different is just being fearless enough to actually take the risks and to place a bet on myself. So either that or um, it's, me being an only child and competitive and stubborn. <laughs> the first bit sounds more inspiring. So let's, let's go with that. I think that in order to be a successful freelancer and to have that entrepreneurial drive actually allow yourself to push you forward, you have to be comfortable with what I call adventure that some people might refer to as instability. And it's how you look at it. It really is. You got to be willing to work atypical hours you have to love what you do because there's nothing worse than trying to start your own business or being a freelancer and hating your job. And for me, one of the reasons why I became a freelancer was because I loved my job so much that I wanted to do more of it. I wanted to work with more clients. I wanted to have that flexibility to work the late hours. Anyone who's a designer can tell you the creativity doesn't necessarily happen from nine to five. And so you have to love what you do. You also, it really helps, I find, to be a, a strong and persuasive communicator, to be able to articulate your ideas, and also just recognize the fact that as a freelancer, sometimes you're the last person hired and the first person fired, so to speak, not fired necessarily. But the idea is that you need to bring to the table something that 
the company doesn't already have within their internal walls. If that's the case, then you'll definitely be more attractive to companies. But you have to have some sort of a skill set that makes you stand out from the competition. Yeah, that actually really resonates with me. One of the things that I, when I was working at Microsoft and working with freelancers, I found that there were a ton of people who had skills that we didn't have inside the company. Uh, And like the idea of going to hire someone for this project as a full-time employee just didn't make sense because I needed a skill set for a project to bring it forward. And the more and more I found people like yourself and, and many, many others, I started to realize that there was a world outside the walls. And that really is what inspired my journey to really trying to understand and and evangelizing for people and and companies and organizations to start working with freelancers. When you started design, you taught yourself how to use a software and tell me about reskilling because I want to talk about that a little bit, how you found not only your passion to solve problems creatively, but the process of teaching yourself how to be effective in doing that. Absolutely. That's a great question. Reskilling is a major part of being a freelancer. It's a necessity. It's a very competitive industry out there. And at the end of the day, I wanted to give myself the best possible foundation to be successful. I find reskilling to kind of be like a muscle. If you don't stop, it's not too hard to keep going. If you build learning into your, you know, every week, once a week, every week, you're, you're reading about what's happening in the industry, you're reading self-help improvement books, you're subscribed to maybe Masterclass or Skillshare, even attending events where there are speakers who are really great at what they do and just to broaden your perspective, it really helps. And it's really important to be able to diversify your skill set as a freelancer. And the reason is because you have to bring something to the table that the company doesn't already have, just like you were talking about. That said, sometimes you need to know where to draw the line from spending too much time focusing on a skill that maybe you're never going to be too good at. So for example, I have basic animation chops, but I know I'm never going to be the world's best animator. And so what I can do instead is I can actually tap into my network as a freelancer and I can promise my clients that I know the people to get it done, even if I can't do it myself. And so sometimes you need to just accept that you will not be the best animator in the world. It's not necessarily complacency or laziness, but it's a decision to redirect your energy somewhere else where you'll be better. So there's this fine line between needing to reskill and diversify your skill set and also just knowing where your time and energy and effort is better spent. And I think that that's a good mark of what makes a really well-rounded freelancer. Yeah, it's one of the things that I found that really resonates with me is the freelance network. When I would reach out to a freelancer and have this amazing experience, like on a research project, the researcher would say, oh, well, I know somebody who knows how to write white papers. So the researcher and the, and the writer would get together and produce this, this outcome. And so a lot of freelancers have very extended networks to know how to get full projects done, even if they are just executing one part of that project. Many people that are in corporate jobs, I think you said something earlier in the conversation about, you know, when you were at your comfortable job, not growing. And I think a lot of people, at least in my experience, work at jobs and they're not growing and, and they don't have the, either the time to reskill because they spend their life in meetings. And to your point, freelancers have to reskill because you're fighting to stay relevant and current and, and improve your value. And, and I'm not saying that everyone at, you know, that works in a company is not trying to improve themselves, but I found that freelancers by default have to.
I read an article that you wrote, Seven Ideas to Improve the Way You See Yourself and the World. Tell me a little bit about that article and what inspired you to write it. I had a lot of fun writing that piece. It's basically an amalgamation of my thoughts after doing some travel, some meditative workshops, understanding what it's like to be a freelancer and dealing with the instability and also just holding a mirror to myself and and questioning why I am the way that I am. I think at the root of it all, the fundamental takeaway from that piece is to realize that as human beings, we are programmed to suffer. And what do I mean by that? Well, suffering happens when you are in a situation where you don't want to be. You want something to be different than your current state of affairs. As humans, we're programmed to suffer because we are evolutionary creatures. We're programmed to constantly improve. And so to me, this is a really profound takeaway that I, that I kind of pieced together after reading all these self-help books and doing all this soul searching, which is that that failure, that sense of wanting to be better, that sense of never being good enough is not only built into our human psyche, but is actually magnified by society. And what do I mean by that? Well, society tells us that we have a very specific structure to follow as we grow and develop. We go to school, we get a job, we get married, we settle down, we save for retirement, and then we die or something along those lines. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but it's not good necessarily either. These are just things that society paints a picture of and we as people wanting to fit in as social creatures think that we need to follow this very traditional path. I think when we're able to separate what society is telling us from what we actually want for ourselves and realize that at the end of the day, this is our lives. This is our life. The media paints a very specific picture. Movies paint this picture. I grew up with Disney. And so my expectations of what I wanted for my future in every sense were very, very skewed. I think that these ideals are the ideals of someone else and not necessarily ourselves. And for me, when I realized what I wanted for myself, it definitely goes against the grain. You know, my, my mother is a nurse. My father works at banks and is a senior project manager. And when I told my parents that I wanted to be a designer, <laughs> they reacted, you know, very loving and supportive, of course, but they were kind of surprised. But I, I think for me, it's realizing that being true to yourself and living life the way that you want it to be lived out at the end of the day, is the best decision that you can make for yourself. That's sort of a high-level summary of what that piece is. But um, my hope with that is to help other people start asking those questions for themselves and hopefully hold a mirror to their soul the way that I did and find whatever it is that really makes them feel like they've got meaning in their life. That's a, an extremely powerful idea, and it's been one at the, the core of my journey. It, it was you know, later in my life, about a year two ago that I started asking myself those questions and they're hard. You know, I, I can, I look at all the, I look at all the people that have come to me, you know, to be a mentor or ask about their career. The number one question I asked them, I said, what, in order for me to be helpful, what do you want? Not the job. Like, yes, you want a paycheck and you want money. Check. Okay. We got that. But what do you really want? And I would say 90% of the, the people cannot answer that question. And it's, it's hard to provide help and guidance to someone who hasn't done the hard work like you have, like I'm going through now, of trying to figure out what they want. And so I, I'm going to share, by the way, I'm going to share this article today on social and we'll, of course, have it in, in the show notes. And I think it's a, it's a powerful reminder that we have one life to live and, and the construct of how you live or the path, the linear path that seems safe 
even professionally isn't safe anymore. I think the idea of working at a company used to be a foregone conclusion. My, my father has a pension. My grandfather had a pension, but I don't live in a world where I had the opportunity to have the same you know, relationship with a company. So a lot of people that listen to this show are people that are trying to figure out how to start working with people like Melissa Morgan. They may have a freelance program. They may have worked with a freelancer, but they work in organizations that are trying to figure out how do I, I keep hearing about this talent economy. I keep hearing that there's all these amazing people around the world, but how do I get started? And so you've worked with, with people at startups and, and Fortune 500 companies. What is advice that you give to people inside companies that are just starting out working with freelancers? I suppose the first thing is to figure out what is it that you actually need done? So working with freelancers is really cool, but what tasks are you trying to accomplish for your business? What problem are you trying to solve? And why do you want to bring in a freelancer? For what period of time? What kind of skills can they bring to the table that you don't already have within your team? And the next piece of advice that I would give is to, of course, have a vision, have an idea of where you're going. But when you choose to hire a designer or a freelancer, make sure that they have a vision for your company as well. There's so many websites out there, 99designs, for example, where I have a real problem with those sites. And the reason is because it's allowing designers and people that have a vague idea of what they want without really communicating, without really problem solving, create something by trial and error. It's a missed opportunity. It's again, it's a trade-off. So if you can hire someone, if you have a clear idea of what you want, especially when you're first starting out, I would say go to a trusted network. A trusted network, TopTel is great. Obviously, I might be a bit biased, but there are some very trusted networks out there. AngelList.co, TopTel are a couple. Go to startup incubators if you're a startup and ask around within the network for resources. Because the last thing you want to do is hire a freelancer that doesn't have experience working or solving a problem that you need solved. The other piece of, of advice that I would give you is if you're hiring a designer, consider that the designer that you hire shouldn't just be an artist. They should have some sort of business acumen as well. A good indication of this is perhaps when you interview them, look to see if they're asking about the problems that you're facing, if they're asking about what statistics you have, what user information you have, and also what milestones you have moving on early on in the process. The best way to get designers of this caliber is to go through a trusted network, especially for first time. If you go through a trusted network, you're going to guarantee that whatever freelancer you're paired with will be able to do the thing that you need them to do. And at the end of the day, that's the whole reason why you would hire a freelancer. No, that's really great advice. Can you give me a good story of an engagement with a company and then give me a story where it didn't go so well and what you learned? I'll tie this into one story, actually, some, some pros and cons that came out of and a working experience that I had. So one of my clients that I had through TopTel, I was very excited to work with because it was a very high profile project. And I was working on this project for about three weeks when the marketing team and the implementation team said that we needed to pull the plug on it just because it was something that was going to launch for Christmas time and there wasn't enough time to test and things like that. So this is what I was referring to earlier when I said as a freelancer, you're the last person hired and the first person fired. So they pulled the plug on this project, we ran out of money. And then I was pretty sad about it because they were actually going to fly me out to LA to do some testing the next week. So we had to cancel flights and things like that. Fast forward, two weeks go by. I'm now on vacation in Iceland and I get an email saying that the project is back on. 
And I'm super excited about this. I didn't even care that I was on vacation. I was working every second that I had happily, very happily. And then they told me that I was going to be going to LA the next week. And then surprise, surprise, the project got pulled again. <laughs> Welcome to corporate America. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> How did you know it was an American client? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and this was a really good learning experience for me as a freelancer because the first time the project got pulled for a while, I was thinking maybe it had something to do with my work or maybe I wasn't working fast enough. But then when I looked at the stats and when I actually spoke to the person that hired me, that wasn't the case at all. It had absolutely nothing to do with me. And it was a really good lesson in understanding that things happen in business and it's not necessarily always about you. Sounds a little naive, but for me, that was a really good growing experience. But anyway, fast forward to two years later, which was this year. And that particular client who I had done work for no longer works at that company. However, he actually got me in contact with two of his contacts who were looking for some major branding and an app for Unfortunately, I can't say the name of the company, but it's a, it's a very large company in the film industry. Surprise, surprise for me, they actually hired me for two very high profile projects. And so something that I thought was a bit of a failed project actually turned into something pretty magical. That was a, that was a reference. I wonder how much I can say. (laughs) (laughs) One of the things that is amazing, even in the work that I do, when I came on to be editor in chief of staffing.com and and do the podcast. And I had a network of freelancers that I'd been working with for, for two years. Lo and behold, I, I come and do this new project and I tapped that network and everybody, you know, started doing amazing work again. And, and that's one of the things that's inspiring. I think you experienced is that people don't forget people that are excited and passionate about their work, that are good at their work, that can deliver high quality product. Building that network is, is part of the trend going forward. You know, I can imagine a world where somebody starts a job at a company and they literally come with 10 freelancers to help them do work. So no matter where you work, your network stays the same and, and can provide value. And that's very different than the way companies work today, because I'd have to go and like hire a bunch of people when I change companies. And that's just difficult. When you look at 2020 and beyond, how do you think freelancing and the work that you do evolves? For me personally, I'm actually working on growing out my design studio right now. I've got so much freelance work coming in. I have two options. I can either clone myself or hire people. So given the technology, the current state of technology, I think I'm going to have to go with option B for now, (laughs) which is, yes, to grow my design studio. So at the moment, I've actually got three part-timers and I'm about to hire a full-timer to join me. It's a really good problem to have. And I think it's, it's a byproduct of putting myself out there, doing the best work that I could possibly do for my clients, building a network, focusing on my personal branding. Even social media actually helps a lot. Social media, I think it's become a bit of a buzzword in the last several years. And I think that's also in itself a missed opportunity. Just the fact that social media is such a great way to build a personal brand. I I think we focus too much on how social media negatively affects all these things. But what about how social media is used for good? In my case, it's helped tremendously in actually getting quite a few of the jobs that I have right now and the clients that I have. For example, I do, I do voice acting. It's not my full-time job, but I posted a video on my social media network the other day and I got a job that's a contract of 40 hours wow. just by sharing that. Yeah. And, and you never know. So social media is actually a really great platform for that. So for 2020, 
for me, it's going to be focusing on growing my design studio. It's going to be focusing on growing my personal brand and overall just becoming a better human being. I really believe in the, the law of attraction. And I think that karma is a real thing. <laughs> I really do. So just putting out into the world what I hope to get back from it. That is great advice and something I I live by as well. This is my favorite part of the show. It's called the rapid fire section. And I've got five questions for you. And at the end of those five questions, I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me any two questions you'd like. You ready? Okay, let's do it. What is one thing about you that's not on your LinkedIn profile? That I have a dog who won a talent show when she was four months old. (laughs) (laughs) She won a Dyson vacuum, actually. A Dyson vacuum. And so now I joke that she's paid off for, <laughs> she's earned her keep for the year at least. There you go. <laughs> if you could trade lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Do they have to be dead or alive? It doesn't matter. doesn't matter. Oh man, I would be Cleopatra for a day. <laughs> and why? Well, I have a strange fascination with Egyptology, but I would love to experience what it'd be like to rule back then. That'd be so cool. <laughs> I'm just imagine like, I'd want to be Cleopatra because like having people carry me around with fans and stuff while eating grapes. <laughs> I had in, my, in my head. If you were stranded on a tropical island, what two things would you want with you? Oh, wow. <laughs> well, if it were 2020, I would want some sort of a portable Wi-Fi device and a cell phone so I could contact someone and tell them to pick me up. <laughs> there you go. Very practical for, for a creative person. <laughs> what book or movie has inspired you the most over the past year? So I have a book that I reread every year and I'm about to reread it again. It's called Influence by Dr. Robert B. Cialdini. And if you haven't read it, for those out there who haven't read it, I would strongly recommend it. It's helps me. It keeps me grounded. It allows me to expand my ways of thinking when it comes to understanding people, the human mind, and even just being a better freelancer in general. I'm going to add it to my 2020 list. And of course, we'll have it in the show notes. Last question. What is better, being radically curious or having attention to detail? Oh, man, I have to pick one. (laughs) You have to pick one. Oh, in 2020, being radically curious is probably better. And the reason for that is because we are working in agile these days. And so attention to detail, although it's important, you can fix it. But being curious, doing the research, discovery, that process, that is an intrinsic quality that is so advantageous in today's day and age. That's great. I'm going to give you the opportunity to ask me any two questions. If you could have dinner with anyone in the world, dead or alive, who would it be and why? I've answered this one before, and I think I'm going to stick with the same. My, my great-grandfather, he was in Canada, had a friend, and that friend moved to Florida and had told him about a job that he could have if he moved to Florida. And he picked up his entire family in a Model A Ford and drove from Canada all the way to southern Florida based on that handshake and promise of a job. And I, I think there's something really powerful in an age where there was no technology that you just took a risk based on a, a human interaction and a promise where people kept their word. And I just think it's a, it's a fascinating story. He was, a, he was an entrepreneur and, and risk taker. And I, I lean on that story and, and him as a safety valve or a, a place where I get inspiration. So that's, I'd love to meet him. 
That's beautiful. Wow. I want to meet him too. <laughs> <laughs> I have this picture of them camping in their Model A cars where they have actually had beds on each side of the car that they would pull up and then they put a tent over the car and put the beds down. And so it's just this crazy picture of, you know, we think we know risk <laughs> until you get a Model A and there's not interstates and your bed is a tent and it's just, it's a different perspective on what risk and self-discovery is about. Hmm. Very cool. Okay, question number two. What is a technology, a new technology that's come out in the last five years that you're keeping an eye on? I would say the evolution of what's next in video communication. You know, as I've moved Mm. to, to being a freelancer, I spend most of my day in the Slack Zoom world right? Where you communicating and then you, somebody shows up on your screen. And I just think there are, there's a, some unlock and some technology that will start making those interactions more personal and more engaging. You know, I think we're just at the beginning of being able to, whether, whether it's a hologram sitting on my desk or, you know, whether I have a chair and you're sitting next to me and we're talking face to face. I, you know, I just think there's, and I know a lot of it's sci-fi, but I just think human interaction in a world where we're all you know, I'm talking to you in Canada and I'm talking to somebody else from around the world and those interactions feel more personal. I think there's there's some jump or somebody who's got an idea and a product in their head, whether that's AR or VR or, you know, holograms. I just, it's how do we become more human living and working in a global world? And so I think that's one of the things that's really interesting to me. Yeah, very cool. Star Trek 2.0 enters the world of 2020. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Melissa, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed this conversation. If someone wants to get in touch with you and learn more about the design work you do, how do, how do they reach out? I really enjoyed chatting with you too, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on the show. If anyone wants to get in touch with me, you can send me a message via my website, melissa-morgan.com. Awesome. Thank you very much. I'm your host, Paul Estes. Thank you for listening to the Talent Economy Podcast. Learn more about the future of work and the transformation of the staffing industry from those leading the conversation at staffing.com, where you can hear from experts, sign up for our weekly newsletter, and get access to the best industry research on the future of staffing. If you've enjoyed the conversation, we'd appreciate you rating us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, or just tell a friend about the show. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of The Talent Economy.